media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. You can open your Bibles to Exodus 12 this morning. Last week we talked about how the Bible is, is a story. It's one story. And yes, we have an Old Testament and the New Testament, and we have different parts, creation, the fall, redemption. One day there's total restoration and this glorification. We see all those things in the Bible, and yet this morning as we come and we begin to look at that story, we I guess there's a lot of different allegories that we could use, illustrations that we could use of, of what the Bible is like. One of those that I think is uh, kind of pretty familiar to me that makes sense to me is, is that of a puzzle. Last week I asked you if you liked a good story. How many of you like a good puzzle? Okay. I, I think a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with puzzles. Uh, and, and one part, people get pretty frustrated that you have a thousand pieces before you. And, and especially when you're just trying to frame it out, you're just trying to get it together and, and try to get a picture in your mind and your heart of what this is to display. And it can be pretty frustrating. At the same time, that's the very excitement that some people have as they fill with all those different uh, uh, thousands of pieces. And, and slowly but surely, they find the ones that link together. And slowly but surely, that picture begins to emerge. In many ways, as we said last week, the, the Bible is the story of God. God providing for us, lost people, a way to have right relationship with Him after our rebellion and our sin. And another way, I think we could describe the Bible as a puzzle. It's made up of thousands of different pieces. We could go and we could begin to see all these different things. And, and why does all that law in the Old Testament, and what about these Psalms, and, and what about this history? And we begin to see all these different things. It's like pieces of a puzzle. But I assure you of this, theologically speaking, spiritually speaking, all those pieces of the puzzle do come together. God holds in his hand this puzzle of the Bible, and it's already a finished work. We're, we're the ones on the discovery process not the one who made the puzzle, not the one who formed the story. We're the ones that as we take even the puzzles, the pieces of the puzzle of our own lives and put it together, we begin to see something emerge. And one of the things we began to see last week in this story, this puzzle, if you want to use that allegory, is that God had purpose. And one of the things that God used as a picture throughout the, the Bible was a lamb. John, in John 1.29, we saw John the Baptist come on the, on the scene and he announced as he saw Christ coming into the wilderness there and into the desert. He said, John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. And we saw that and that's really kind of a, a focus of this Advent series is this proclamation by John the Baptist of the ministry of Christ, the purpose of Christ. And I want you to know, guys, that's not a process. It is a puzzle that has been completed. We're the ones that are still kind of finding the pieces. It's a story that's already completed in many, many ways. God's not making this up. Having kind of helped participate in writing a book one time, the hardest part is always the beginning and the end. The middle kind of takes care of itself. I want you to know that, as you've probably heard some people maybe even jokingly say before, the end of the story has already been written, as it's just a matter of time before we see the fullness of that. 
And this morning as we begin to, to look more at this whole allegory, this whole illustration, this whole symbolism of the Lamb, it takes us to, to begin to see that God has used these different uh, pictures of the Lamb throughout the Word of God. We saw last week that we see it first mentioned in Genesis 4, how Cain and Abel, they brought offerings, and Abel's offering was a lamb, and, and it was acceptable to God. We saw that it, the lamb was central in the story of the, the telling of Abraham and his son Isaac. When God did the unthinkable, he said, I want you to go and sacrifice your son, your only son that you love. This is after he had made a covenant with Abraham, and he said, through you, I'm, I'm going to bring great a great nation and, and multitudes of generations, as many as the sand on the shore of the sea. And so you can only imagine how that was strange for Abraham to say, then why would you want me to sacrifice my son? He, he is the promise. He's the one by which this will continue through. And yet, as we looked last week, Genesis chapter 22, we see that God already had an answer. Uh, look again, Genesis 22, starting with verse 12. And God said, do not lie, lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now look at verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That scene, as we looked at it last week, begins to really introduce this whole concept of a substitutionary death. That that here he was supposed to, to sacrifice his son Isaac, and God provided a substitute, and that substitute took the place of his son. It's this whole idea of the substitutionary death that is the central part of the Bible. It is the only hope that you and I have is that somehow in our inability to pay for our own sins and our inability to make ourselves right with the Holy God, no matter how hard you would try, that God has a story. That God has a piece of this puzzle that you and I could never construct on our own. And that he did it with purpose. And he did it through his son, the Lamb of God. Now I want you to go to that Exodus 12 that we had talked about just a little bit before. Now this is years later. It's not Abraham and Isaac, but now it's the descendants of Abraham and Isaac. And if you grew up in the church, you're probably familiar with this story, but many of you didn't grow up in the church. Many of you are new to the church. You're kind of new, maybe especially to some of the Old Testament stories that we've heard, these events that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. And in this particular story, we see that these descendants of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob now reside in Egypt. They came there during a famine. And remember the story, Joseph, many of you may remember that person in biblical history and how he was second in command over all of Egypt. And so he provided for the Israelites and he provided a safe passage. He provided food and, and during this time, the Israelite nation began to grow. Even though they were in Egypt, they began to grow. But then that Pharaoh, that had shown them some favor because of Joseph, died. And you know how it is. Sometimes when there's a change of administration, you get a new person, you get a, a new process. And that happened even back there in biblical times. And a new Pharaoh came upon. And this new Pharaoh did not know Joseph and did not show favor 
to the Israelites. In fact, if anything, he's quite intimidated by God's people. Intimidated by their wealth, their prosperity, their, their standing for this God that the Pharaoh did not know. But most of all, he began to notice that they were multiplying in number. That not only were they hopefully growing in spiritual in their spiritual walk, but their numbers were multiplying to the point where as we open up Exodus and we begin to read more about the story, here's what the Pharaoh said about this nation of Israelites, these descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Exodus 1, verse 8 through 10. Now there arose a new king, a new Pharaoh over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our our enemies and fight against us and escape from this land. Now this is a Pharaoh who comes on and he sees the people of God, probably totally unaware of the covenant that God has made with Abraham and Isaac, and he's continuing it through the lineage, and he sees the people that are in affront to what's personal to him, the prosperity of Egypt. And in this fear, he decides to enslave them and to put them under the duress of, of their heavy hand. Well, for the next 400 years, the Israelites, the people of God, the very ones that had this covenant relationship with God are under duress. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems strange. I think it would be especially strange for Abraham and Isaac. Because mostly, wouldn't you think that when Abraham was given this covenant, when God made covenant with Abraham, that he was going to have a, uh, this big nation and a multitude of generations, don't you think that, at least in Abraham's mind, that that would be generations filled with blessing? Do you think that Abraham ever imagined that this multitude of people now that many would estimate were in the millions, that the Israelites, these descendants had grown to the millions, would be enslaved in captivity? It's not exactly what I believe Abraham had in mind when God said you're going to be a father of a great nation. This goes on for 400, 430 years. And then finally, God answers. And he raises up the man by the name that you might have heard before, Moses. He says, Moses, you're gonna, I'm going to raise you and use you to, to lead my people out of captivity. And we have all kinds of different uh, movies that have made been throughout history, uh, Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, you know, different things like that. That And maybe in our mind we're thinking of all those different things. This is Moses, and he's going to lead us out. There's hope in the midst of this captivity. In the, in the midst of all this, God is putting together this story. But I want you to know that I believe with all my heart, and I believe that there's biblical proof, God is not making this up as he goes. God's not saying, oh, that's not the Pharaoh that I thought would come into power. When disarray comes into our lives, do you ever kind of propose that maybe God wasn't expecting this? Maybe we at least act that way. Maybe you're grounded theologically enough to go, okay, nothing 
is other, ever catches God unaware. He knows all things. He, he truly is omniscient of all things. He's sovereign over all things. There's nothing out of the control of God. And maybe we know that theologically, but I promise you that every one of us, at least at some point of our life, when something that we had planned or something that we had counted on, a covenant that God makes with Abraham, and then we see it become almost shredded. We see it totally opposite of what we thought was going to happen. And our doubt doesn't always come back with us. A lot of times our doubt begins with, well, God, why? Remember the three questions that we usually ask when our life is falling down? Why me? Why this? Why now? In some form or fashion, every one of us have asked that. And when we've asked that, most of the time, whether we are looking to the heavens or not, we're really asking that, kind of contemplating that, to this God, this God of promise. Because we're going, okay, this is not what I expected from your promise. I can imagine that if Abraham saw this scene, and said, this is not what I thought the covenant meant. This is a blessing, God, that now... My ancestors have grown to the millions and yet you've placed them in captivity. You've put them as servants to this nation of Egypt. Not for a generation or two, but for many generations. 430 years. And yet God has a plan. This reluctant leader, Moses, God instructs him to go to the Pharaoh and demand that the people of Israel be let go. Well, you can only imagine what the Pharaoh said to that. This is his workforce. This is how he's been able to expand building and and all kinds of commerce and all kinds of different things. And all of a sudden, you want to take all the laborers, all the ones that he has kind of built this city upon? And so he says, no. And Moses comes back under the instruction of God and says, okay, God's going to judge you for this. And God begins a series of plagues that he brings upon the people of Egypt. Oh, those plagues are, are, I guess they're, we would consider them weird, but I think we would also consider them plaguing. Like one is frogs. I'm not talking about two or three frogs. I'm not talking about two or three thousand frogs. I'm not talking about two or three hundred thousand frogs. We're talking about frogs everywhere you went. When you opened up a drawer, there's full of frogs. When you open up the cupboard, the fridge, whatever it was, everywhere you look, there's frogs. And that was just one of the ten different plagues. There were locusts. There was disease. The people, their bodies began to break out in boils. The uncomfort of that. All of this because of God's judgment upon sin and famine, fleas and gnats. If you've ever been south of, like, Macon, the gnat line, you go, man, there's gnats down here. Nothing compared to the plague of the gnats. They came upon all of Egypt. And God continues to do this. And every time that this happens, the Pharaoh kind of reacts in a way like, okay, then I'm going to let your people go. And God would stop the plague and Pharaoh would change his mind. This happens over and over again through the first nine plagues. And then we begin to see that a tenth and a final plague is proposed by God. That he's going to bring the plague of all plagues that would get to the heart of both Egypt and the Pharaoh. This plague would be the death of the firstborn. Uh, Look in Exodus chapter 11 verse 5. 
And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. This tenth plague is God's judgment on sin. And unlike other times when the people of Israel kind of were protected from that, and it didn't really come into their area, this time it's going to be over all the land. It's a judgment of sin. Were the Israelites sinners? They were. They were God's chosen people, but they were sinners. In fact, you can go in other parts of the Bible, and it says that even during this time, this 430 years, they had kind of many times succumbed to worshiping the idols of the Egyptians. And, and yet we see that, you know, wouldn't it be just natural for God to bring plagues to people that were not considered his, but, but that he would protect his own people? And in this tenth plague, guys, it's a pronouncement of judgment of sin across all the land of Egypt. And where are the Israelites at this time? In the land of Egypt. And you might say, well, Pastor, I, I think you're getting the story wrong because, because doesn't he kind of, you know, uh, protect them and provide for them? Yes, he does. But this is the first of, of all the, the different plagues that, that was pronounced upon all of them. And what they deserved was the exact same thing as the Egyptians. See, one of the things that we sometimes think in our minds and I think a lot of the, the rest of the world thinks this, that Christians think about themselves, that we're just better than everybody else. Have you ever had somebody tell you that was a non-believer, maybe somebody outside the faith? And Well, you Christians, you just think you're better than everybody else. Folks, the biblical truth is that we're not better than anybody else. Israel was God's people, God's chosen people. God had made covenant with Abraham, but they were not better in the sense of holiness than all the people in Egypt. God's pronouncement of sin would be over all the land of Egypt. It's a really important part of this story that we have to recognize. Because if we think that God is just the God that's always going to protect his people from all the judgments, then, then we kind of get a, a wrong picture of God. We get a God who has not only picked a favorite, but then he just doesn't carry out justice to even those favorites. But you know, in my life, don't you want a God that picks out his favorites? I mean, honestly, humanly speaking, don't you want a God who says, okay, calamity go to these people because they're evil. But you know, they're less evil, so I'm going to bring good things to them. At most, that would be the case that sometimes we might be able to make. It's not that we're absent of evil, but, but maybe, hopefully, <laughs> you hear this morning, you're, you're less evil than maybe some other people that don't follow God. That would be the highest claim that we would make. And yet, in the midst of that, here's what we have, guys. That that description of sinner, that description of evil, would still be upon us. I told somebody this morning that, you know, in all these years, talking to thousands of folks, there's a lot of people that would disagree with biblical truth. There's a lot of people that, that don't believe in a God at all or the God of the Bible. But one thing I've never come across in all these years is somebody that would say, you know, I'm perfect. That's one thing I've never had even a single person ever to say. This morning as we begin to look at this, let, let's understand that, that God brings this tenth plague to all the people 
and Egypt. So let's be really careful that at this point that, that, that the Israelites, if we're going to see that God does spare them, but it's not because they were better. He spares them because he provides a way for them to be spared. Such an important point, especially in the light of what we're looking forward to if this is a pre-picture of Christ. Look at verse 3 of chapter 12. What is this way that the people of God, Abraham's descendants that he's made covenant with, what way is he going to spare judgment of sin? It's a lamb. And I don't know about you, but I don't know that that would have been the first thing that came to my mind. And yet it was exactly the plan of God. Verse 3, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And then he begins to describe this lamb, verses 5 and 6. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourth day, fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. He said, I want you to take a lamb. He describes it to be a, a lamb without blemish. And I want you to examine this lamb for 14 days and, and make sure it's without blemish. And then on the night that I will tell you, I want you collectively, the whole nation of Israel, I want you to take the life of this lamb, kill this lamb. And then they were to do something with the blood of this lamb. Look at verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Can we show that picture? Probably looks something like that. I, I don't know if they understood, if they made connection. We make connection today because maybe we've heard this story. or Maybe because in light of Christ and knowing that this was a pre-picture of Christ, we, we kind of make sense of this. That there's blood on the doorpost and the lintel over the top. What happens that night? God's plan comes into being. And do the Israelites deserve the same judgment that Egypt does? Yes. Because maybe they're less evil, if we want to use that term. But do they still have sin in their lives? Have they been perfect in every way before a holy God? They haven't. And, and so in one way, God's justice, if it's going to be a justice against sin, then it would come to everybody, even God's chosen people. And yet God has a plan. A substitutionary death. One dying in place of another that deserves it. In this case, a lamb. They take this lamb. We know it as the Passover lamb. And they take this lamb and, and they're given instructions there. You can go back and read all the instructions there to eat every bit of this lamb. They're to take the blood and put it over the door post and the lentil. And what happens that night? Everything that God said, every single detail that God had promised comes into truth. God's judgment falls on Egypt. And the firstborn dies in this judgment. Look at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, 
from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. This judgment comes and it falls upon the land and judgment brings death except those who had by faith trusted that God was making another way and had taken this lamb and and killed this lamb and and then eat it, the roasted lamb, afterwards. They weren't to boil it. They weren't to, to fix it other way. It was, it was the specific instructions. But to take the blood of this lamb and to put it across their door. And when the death angel comes that night, the judgment of God falls upon all the land of Egypt. It passes over those households and those within that house. Kind of hard not to get a pre-picture of Christ in this. Because all the elements are there, folks. Are Christians better people than the rest of the world that are non-Christians? Thank you. I mean, hopefully, maybe there's some morality about us. Maybe we are kind. Maybe as the Spirit of God works in our lives, that truly we are a separate people. The Bible would even go on to say that we should be a peculiar people. But we're not a different people that somehow we have earned the right before a a holy God does to stand with him, to live with him. No, it took somebody to stand in our place. This whole idea of a substitute, a substitutionary death, that one would take that, but in order to take that, in this case, what kind of lamb did it need it to be? A lamb without blemish. One day God provides a lamb without blemish. His own son, Jesus Christ. Kind of makes sense now what John the Baptist said as he saw Christ begin his ministry and come over that horizon. Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. See, that's the difference here. All the other pre-pictures of Christ, they kind of covered the sins in a temporary fashion. But they did not take away the sins. The whole sacrificial system of the Israelites to go in there, and they did this on a regular basis. They did it at least once a day for the community. But then personally, they would come and they would take and make sacrifice to God. Did that take away their sin? It didn't. It covered it up. It was a, a momentary covering up of their sin. But one day a, a true lamb would come. God's last substitute for sin. And this time it was not a pre-picture of God's answer. It was the answer of God. When God would take on flesh and dwell among us. And this Christ would grow. And in his perfection with no sin, no blemish on his life, would come and lay down his life for us. It's kind of how the apostle Peter said it. In 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, you're a sinner, they were sinners, and you come from a long line of sinners. Not with perishable things or with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. New Testament writers, they, they got this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb. He identifies this tradition that had been there 
for centuries. He says, this Passover lamb that you celebrate every year, and it was a big deal for Israel. In fact, when I was in Israel, it's still a big deal today. Now, they do it more out of just a, a tradition than they do from spiritual reasons. But to this day, you go over to Jerusalem, you go over during the Passover, it's a big event, guys. It's a really big event. Kind of lacking in many of the households the spiritual significance, but it's still part of their tradition. The lamb that would free us from the bondage of sin. Just as the Israelites were freed from the bondage and the slavery to the Egyptians. The lamb that would one day welcome us to our promised land. In the same way that as they began to, to get out of Egypt, God had promised them a promised land. A land filled with milk and honey in description. In the same way, this lamb that John the Baptist spoke about frees us from our bondage and our enslavement to sin. doesn't mean that you're going to stop sinning. I had the opportunity the other day to, to, to talk to a, a young man in our, in our church. And he says, okay, if, if I'm saved, if I'm a Christian, you know, well, what about if I keep on sinning? I said, well, unfortunately, we're going to keep on sinning in this life. Hopefully a lot less, and hopefully we're going to hate evil and sinfulness more and more, and we're going to have a more and more holy life. But, but we're still going to mess up. Is that correct? But our sin has been paid for. It's not just been covered. It's been taken away. The Old Testament says, as far as the east is from the west, has God removed our sins from us. My, my familiar verse that I give you all the time in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that all of our sins, that is for Christians who by faith have put their faith and trust in this Lamb of God, have been taken and placed on Him. And all of His righteousness Impute it to us. That's your position before a holy God today, guys. And you you may not feel it. I mean, I, I guarantee you there's a lot of Monday mornings that you crawl out of bed with your crankiness or maybe some other crankiness that's laying beside you that morning. And all of a sudden you go, man, you know, I still sin. <laughs> I still have this old flesh to contend with. So we may not always feel the way... But I promise you, if you place your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, your position before a holy God this morning is that your sins have been forgiven and his righteousness has been imputed to you. That's your position. This is our hope in Jesus Christ. You see this story, this puzzle, if we want to use that uh, illustration... All, become, all begins to come together when God begins to connect each piece. And central to this puzzle, in fact, if God made a puzzle of the Bible, and it was a thousand pieces, I would imagine that at least 30, 40, or 50 of those pieces of those thousands would have lambs on them. That he would just keep on using that because you go back and you start looking at, I mean, take one of your Bible dictionaries and look up lamb and all the verses, and you'll see that it touches almost every book of the Bible. A lot of those pieces of the puzzle, God keeps on bringing the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, until we get to the lamb of Jesus Christ, the lamb that God would provide, not just for one of, as one of God's answers to our sin, but the only answer for our sin. Folks, Christ is the only escape from the bondage of sin. He's the only way to escape, to escape 
God's holy, just judgment for sin. His only way to see the promises of God fulfilled. Truly, if the, if the Bible were a puzzle and we were putting it together, this lamb would be there before us. And then the final picture would show the lamb central to all of these things. And you know what really overwhelms me about all this? This plan for God to provide a lamb, this promise of Christ was not an afterthought. But the Bible tells us before the foundation of the world. I mean, remember what we just saw there in 1 Peter 18 and 19? Look at verse 20. Whom he foreknew before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. A God who's making up things as he goes and, and kind of scribbles in some details and some other notes are a God who has one story, one puzzle, and all the pieces are there, but, but we're the beneficiaries of just seeing a couple pieces at the time come together. The God of the Bible, the true God, is the God who's already written this story. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at Revelation. And we're going to be able to see that this puzzle does have a completion. If you like puzzles, then there's a, a sense of excitement, there's a sense of joy, there's a sense of accomplishment when you get that final piece and, and you put it in there. A lot better than the frustration of going, okay, where's the final piece? Have you ever been there? You put it together, you look in the box, you look in everything, you, you shake the box, and, and you're still missing one or two pieces, and you're going, okay, I'm never going to be able to put all this effort, all this faith into this building this puzzle, and, and it will never be complete. That's never going to happen with God in his puzzle. He's got all the pieces. And in his time and in his way, he's going to put all that together. And one day in Revelation, we're going to see that. And we'll, we'll look at that uh, really close up and, and personal in a couple of weeks. But, but I just want to speak to you this morning. You know, we used this illustration of a puzzle last week, an illustration of a story. Do you ever feel like your life is just a puzzle and you can't get the pieces to fit together? A lot of you true puzzle makers know, okay, I'm going to get the framework. I'm going to get all the, the, the flat end pieces. I'm going to build my frame and then I'm going to start working on the inside. And maybe you even have a framework for your life. You're married. Maybe you have some plans about a family and you've started a family. And, and maybe you've made some framework and yet you look at all the other pieces and you're going, I, I really don't know how this is all going to come together. Or maybe you think that tragically you so messed it up that it's never going to come together. You're just waiting for deliverance. Uh, some people here this morning, I, you know, we're talking about being in bondage and slavery. Some of you... Uh, perhaps are enslaved to your past. Not because God has you enslaved to that, but because you have. And you're going, because I did this or this or this, I'll never be able to, to fulfill this, God's, God's call upon my life. It's just another form of slavery, another form of bondage. God's answer to that? The Lamb of God. The most amazing thing to me about this biblical story, this substitutionary death, is not only do I get God, but I get the fullness of God and His plan for my life. 
Oh, because I did the right thing at 13 and 15 and 17 and 21. Lord knows not 21. And 25 and 31. No, because God has a plan for my life. And as much as I've tried to take those puzzle pieces and I've tried to throw them away or or some are kept from me, God in His mercy and His grace, the great puzzle maker has a hope and a future for you. Let me give you just a little bit of revelation. This final picture. When all the pieces of the puzzle will come together. We'll look at it in a couple weeks. Revelation 21, verse 22 and 23. And I saw no temple in the city. This is John's description of heaven. He gets to see heaven. And I saw no temple in the city... For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon or to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. God finishes the story. God puts every piece of the puzzle together. My prayer for you this morning is that you would understand that this is available to you. If you've never trusted Christ, would be today be the day that you know I want to be delivered from my bondage of slavery to you know, just my past and and this, and that you would just put your total faith because I mean, remember that Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. God gave them instructions: take the blood of the Lamb and do what with it? Put it on the doorpost and, and over the lintel. And when they did that by faith, when they responded in faith to God's plan, what happened when judgment came? Passed over them. Fast forward centuries later, and God provides the slab. And so how can we have this life today? By putting faith in God's provision. No works, no goodness. Maybe we're a little less evil than some other people that we would know, and that makes us feel good. But God's judgment comes on all of us. The only hope that we have is this Lamb of God. And as the Apostle Paul said, Christ is our Passover Lamb. Let's pray this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, as we think about Christmas and we think about you clothing yourself, Father, in flesh and dwelling among us, Father, this morning we begin to think about how you've used this illustration, this picture of the Lamb, And Father, how in this picture of the Lamb, over and over and over again, we see you pointing to Christ. And so Father, this morning, it's not about an animal, it's not about an act of sacrifice, Father, that we would do as as men. Father, it's all about this picture of what you've provided. And I pray this morning, Father, that we would understand that, Father, you are completing this picture. And even though our life may seem like a shamble, that just pieces that don't fit together, Father, when we put our faith and our trust in you, it doesn't mean that instantly everything is going to go right, Father. I mean, we just look at the descendants of Abraham, Father. You made covenant with him. You made promise to him. And yet for 430 years, they're captives. They're servants under an, a pharaoh. 
And yet, Father, you provided a lamb. And that lamb led not only to life for those Israelites, but a deliverance. And so, Father, your promise is not that you're going to make everything in our life to just go perfectly, that we won't be without troubles. But, Father, you've provided that we will have life and that we will not be in bondage. That, Father, you will lead us to you. And one day, Father, that will come into to, to fullness and we will be with you forever and ever. Until that day, Father, give us faith. Help us to put our trust, Father, not in our own abilities, but, Father, in the Lamb that you have sent. We love you and we thank you. So we pray all this in the hope that it's Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook. 